I'm Janet Jacobson, and I'm the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, and I want to thank you all for coming out um, for this evening, which is both what we think will be a very exciting conversation with three extremely impressive activists and also the first in this uh, academic year's uh, programming from the Barnard Center for Research on Women. So we're always happy to see people um, come out right at the beginning. All right. Our three speakers this evening are each in her own right, um, uh, uh, impressive activists, and they've done some important work um, over the course of the last several years. Uh, the f they'll speak in the order in which I will introduce them. I will introduce um, all three speakers. They'll each talk for 10 or 15 minutes, then we'll have some conversation amongst them, and then we'll open it up for conversation with all of you. Um, so our first speaker will be Mia Herndon. She's the executive director of the Third Wave Foundation, and she has worked extensively to support the leadership development of young people across the nation through grant making and skills development of young leaders and emerging organizations. Prior to becoming executive director um, in January of 2009, Mia served as program director and has been with the organization since 2001. She currently serves on the board of directors for funders concerned about AIDS, and the advisory boards of expanding the movement for empowerment and reproductive justice and causes in common. Before Third Wave, she facilitated networks of support and exchange between activists, funders, and artists with the Active Element Foundation and funders for gay and lesbian issues. She has also worked with many community-based organizations focusing on women's leadership, HIV-AIDS prevention, anti-violence work, international worker solidarity, and the criminalization and imprisonment of diasporic African communities. She graduated from Columbia University, which is an institution that we do value highly here at Barnard College, <laughs> with an interdisciplinary major in African American Studies. Um, our second speaker will be Deborah Cole, who is a member of Domestic Workers United. For those of you who were hoping to hear Ai-jen Poo, um, Ai-jen has the flu. Um, and we commend her for not coming when she has the flu. And we also are very grateful to Deborah Cole for coming on short notice. Um, and we're thankful that she's able to be with us. Um, Deborah has been a member of Domestic Workers United for three years and is a leader of the Cultural Committee of DWU. She is a nanny and has worked in the domestic work industry for eight years. She is originally from Trinidad and T Tobago, is a mother of three children, a grandmother of five, and a cultural performer. In other words, she's very um, busy. <laughs> Domestic Workers United is an organization of nannies, housekeepers, and elderly caregivers in New York organizing for power, respect, fair labor standards, and to help build a movement to end oppression for all. DWU helped to organize the first national meeting of domestic worker organizations at the U.S. Social Forum in 2007, which resulted in the formation of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And I should say that we've been working in collaboration with DWU for two years, and we're very grateful for their solidarity. Our third speaker will be Rinku Sen. Um, who is the president and executive director of the Applied Research Center and publisher of Color Lines magazine. Over the course of her career, Rinku has woven together journalism and organizing to further social change. She has written extensively about immigration, community organizing, and women's lives from a wide variety for a wide variety of publications, including the Huffington Post and the San Francisco Chronicle. Her book, Stir It Up, Lessons in Community Organizing was commissioned by the Ms. Foundation for Women and released in the fall of 2003. Her latest book, The Accidental American, Immigration and Citizenship in the Age of Globalization, won the Nautilus Book Award Silver Medal. Previously, Rinku served as the Communications Director and the Director of the Transnational Racial Justice Initiative at ARC. 
She also has significant experience in philanthropy as vice chair of the Schott Foundation for Public Education, something we also believe in here, and an advisory committee member of the Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity. Prior to that, Rinku held various leadership roles at the Center for Third World Organizing, a national network of organizations of color where she trained new organizers and crafted public policy campaigns from 1988 to 2000. Rinku started her organizing career as a student activist at Brown University. So as you can see, those of you who are students, you can in fact become these women. fighting race, gender, and class discrimination on campuses. She received a BA in Women's Studies from Brown in 1988 and an MS in Journalism at, yes, Columbia University in 2005. Mia Herman. Um, so thank you so much for having us here at the Barnard, at Barnard, and particularly for the Barnard Center for Research on Women. Um, it feels really exciting to be a part of this esteemed panel. Uh, I'll figure out the mic in a second. Um, um, and to also just have the connections because <laughs> um, after I'd been connected with Third Wave, I got connected with Third Wave in 2001 as I was a student at Columbia. And um, I did a project, was a part of a project that we had at the time called Rome's Reaching Out Across Movements. And, um, and fell in love and stayed with the organization. Um, but one of the first things they had me do was come back to Barnard and do a panel. So it feels like some full circle things happening. Um, and similarly, the work with DWU, I'm a deep supporter and lover of as a mother um, and um, believe in the critical work that happens uh, within our homes for um, you know, all people to have dignity and value in every career. Um, and I had the great fortune of partnering with uh, the Schott Foundation, which, which Rinku is a part of, um, just on Monday on a panel or a symposium on creating, the, um, creating opportunities and eradicating educational barriers for girls and young women of color in public school systems. So it feels like a real homecoming. So thank you. Um, so quickly, um, Third Wave is a national feminist foundation that supports young women and transgender youth ages 15 to 30 who are working on a variety of social justice issues. Um, our primary goal through grant making, leadership development, and philanthropic advocacy is to really ensure that there is a platform for feminist youth voices and that that platform can really shape um, the way in which social movements happen and the way in which we build solutions for eradicating what, or build solutions to kind of um, creating a more holistic, uh, well society. Um, because I think we can all kind of agree that we've got some broken issues, <laughs> right, along the way. And so um, Third Wave has been doing this work since, um, I guess we began in 96, uh, incorporated, and in 97 gave our first grants. And at that time, it was really folks like you in the audience. Everyone said, I, you know, give your age in dollars, actually, was our membership call. So if you were 21, give us $21. Tell us what are the most critical issues to your life um, that are important to you and how we can then work on building a network of other folks who are equally committed, concerned, and able to carry out these issues. Um, we were founded um, out of a kind of very basic but also radical belief that, like, Young folks are active, <laughs> like, and that, um, and what's really necessary is resources to support the work. And we came and grew out of a moment that really challenged this notion that we were apathetic and that we weren't engaged in the work. Um, so, you know, uh, in '92, which, well, anyway, 
<laughs> some of you may remember the Rodney King trials. Um, some of you may remember uh, the Robert Kennedy rape trials. Um, so essentially there was this moment when a seasoned feminist were calling out for a younger feminist, wondering where are the younger feminist. <laughs> and we were like, we're here. We just we work on a variety of issues and uh, recognize and see that and also build relationships and support and connections to our work rather than calling out that we're not effective, right? Um, so that's kind of the, that was the heart of why we are around. Um, I would say um, what we also recognize though that there was in um, second wave feminist work or um, work that preceded um, the 90s, 80s, and 90s, um, that um, feminism was largely dominated by um, white middle-class um, interest. Um, and uh, so as a result, kind of the issues that were being organized around, the, the spaces uh, that were um, being created were not inclusive of the needs that young women had, that women of color had, that lesbian, queer, trans folks had. Um, that disabled women had, that just was not space. Um, so, you know, it'd be like, come on, everybody's welcome, come to our meeting, but we don't have childcare. Um, so, uh, so if you're a mom, uh, figure it out. <laughs> um, our room isn't accessible, right? So like this notion of come, but don't, right? Um, so Third Way was really founded on the understanding that in order to create a more just society, we had to actually have an inclusive agenda. Um, and we had to be clear about what it meant to empower and bring, or bring resources to the power that already existed um, in women of color and trans folks. And so um, our, our big work has really been leveraging resources to that effort. Um, this year we're going to be giving out about $500,000 in grants. Um, that's coming from, again, our first year grant making at $13,000. Um, and that's over $2 million over the course of our history. Um, and, um, and those grants, uh, so I'm spending a little time telling you kind of like who those grants have gone to and kind of what's the structure of um, organizations that are feminist youth-led or young women and transgender youth-led organizations. I will just have a quick caveat, though, in saying that um, not all of the organizations we support, and in fact, most of them do not claim feminism, right? So I'll just start there. <laughs> um, while the issues, uh, the analyses, the strategies certainly call home and may uh, are continuations of work that we saw happening and um, recognized as critical, uh, there's, there's many reasons why folks do not hold and honor feminism as a term or a rallying term or organizing and framework um, to be utilized. Um, backlash, um, and again, that lack of inclusive space have left like a really nasty taste in many people's mouths, right? So that being said, however, we think that the work that um, young women and trans youth are doing is incredible, critical, and transformational, and so we want to be a part of supporting it, and we understand it as feminists or about promoting gender justice. Um, so quickly, um, we actually are in the process of uh, putting out a report that um, uh, surveyed the impact of feminist youth-led organizations or young women and transgender youth-led organizations over the last 10 years. And, um, and there were about, we found that about 200 organizations that will fall in this category, right? Um, and of them, we surveyed about 65 um, that 
range in terms of, they're mostly in urban areas, right? So the Bay Area, New York, D.C., Chicago, Atlanta, um, found across the country, Albuquerque. Um, they range in membership size. Some of them have one to 20 members that they work with. Some of them, about a third have, you know, 20 to like 75. And then the others have like over 500 plus memberships. So if you take kind of the conglomerate of, or the aggregate of the organizations that we work with, um, or that are um, understood as young women and transgender youth-led organizations, they, they on average have a membership base of about 1,500 folks. Um, and on an aggregate altogether, about 70,000 70, people, right? So, you know, in, the, in, uh, in relationship to what young folks are able to do, that's a lot of people to be able to move, right? Um, especially considering the resources they utilize in doing that, right? So it's usually, um, the majority of their budgets are under $200,000. There are some that have budgets of about 500000 and or above, but really these are organizations that have not garnered large resources and support from um, foundations in particular. Um, and what's critical about, and we think that has happened for a few reasons, but one, in general, a lot of philanthropic resources don't go to people of color-led institutions. Um, and certainly they don't go to women-led institutions. And so the combination um, of the two, to be young, to be people of color, to be um, queer, um, uh, means that you end up being in a really tight spot when you're looking for resources from foundations. Um, and that's exactly who this constituency is. Like over half of them are people of, at least people of color, no, sorry, um, we're talking at least like 60% to um, people of color. Um, they include the, um, folks who are disabled, about 46% of the groups, um, about 39 represent immigrant communities. Uh, about 37 represent young mothers, 34% uh, represent incarcerated folks, or about 45 formerly incarcerated, um, and then about 40% survivors of um, sexual abuse, and um, about 40% sex workers, right? So when you think about, when we look at the systemic inequalities that exist in our society and where those come to a head in people's life experiences, um, and then how we would get out of and eradicate those systemic barriers, the leadership of the youth-led organizations that we're supporting, like, nails it, right? It said these are the people who need to be a part of making the agenda because they understand what is there in the path, what's in their path, what's blocking, and what's not working. Um, and, and as a result, the kind of solutions that we'll create will be drastically different. So what, is the, like, and what, is, what does it look like? What do the organizations look like? Um, I'll give you a quick story. Um, um, we support an organization called Sisters on the Rise that's based here in um, uh, the Bronx. Um, and Sisters on the Rise organizes young mothers and young women and, 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 and pregnant young women um, alongside uh, other young women that believe that it's critical for there to be space where um, young people to come together and can actually build a vision and a voice. And so some of the work that they've done is to ensure that uh, young women, when they're pregnant or parenting, can actually continue to go to school, um, right? And so that you end that kind of generational cycle of poverty that exists oftentimes when you're blocked from educational experiences. Um, and then, like, when you say you go to school, that it's actually meaningful school. So you have a math teacher and a science teacher, um, and it's not just knitting, which is great. 
but uh, that won't get you into college, right? Um, and, <laughs> and similarly, that, um, that when you look at um, what it means to actually create a, an environment that's inclusive of, of young women, um, young mothers and pregnant women, that like you don't get, be, be, you aren't called absent and won't graduate because you want maternity leave, right? Or um, that you're able to like eat in your classroom because you're hungry and you're pregnant, right? So kind of basic things that are about understanding human dignity and our experiences and kind of going from there in order to build um, um, kind of an effective or, um, school environment. Or, um, and similarly, um, and you know, what they did was shift school policy, right? So first they started off with like, just building sisterhood, building opportunities for people to understand each other, build, understanding then their connections and relationships to each other and what their experiences were, and moving that into a place of, moving that into a place of then saying, so of our collective experiences, what do we need to do to change that? Right? So it's a basic leadership development, political education model that then moves into organizing and advocacy on their behalf. Right? Um, and that's often what the organizations that we support do. Right? Um, they say, let's, safe space is critical for young people. It's critical for trans folks who often are either not in their, who aren't accepted in their homes or who on the streets receive a lot of harassment. So we have to have a safe space. Um, and then what do we do about this situation that we're experiencing? How do we regenerate, support each other, and then how do we shift and change the system that's making this, um, making our lives uh, struggles rather than enhancing and, th and understanding us as critical parts of the society? Um, so similarly, um, uh, I'll give you one more example, and then we can, as we kind of get into the conversation, I'm happy to talk about other examples. Um, so there's an organization we support in Chicago called the Young Women's Empowerment Project. And Young Women's Empowerment Project um, is um, where their website is youarepriceless.org. Um, and, and, and that framework is because um, most of the young women and um, trans youth that are part of the organization are engaged in the sex trade. Um, and they particularly talk about it as a sex trade rather than sex work because they don't want to define themselves as workers, per se, um, understanding that, that what they do is sex work, but they want to have other opportunities to, but understand that they are trading sex for money and for other survival needs. And so, um, and, and, what cis, uh, and what Young Women's Empowerment does is both kind of build the leadership of young women that are engaged in the sex trade, um, both teaches them how to run an organization, uh, teaches them harm reduction skills. So, like when you are in, uh, when you are trading sex for money, how do you stay safe? How do you stay safe um, when you are um, in the presence of police officers? How do you kind of mitigate the harm that can happen? Which is usually police officers saying, "Okay, then you are forced to trade sex or have sex with me," right? Um, in order to not go to prison or what have you. Um, and, then they, and then they do other critical things, like so help them support the legal system, um, help them navigate the legal system um, as folks who may be undocumented or who might not have the right documentation because their gender doesn't, expression doesn't meet their, um, how they were born. Um, and, um, and, uh, and then they do all that, and they talk about resilience. Right? Like, what does it mean to be resilient? Because our communities, while we have lots of struggles, we are powerful and able to move and to organize and to build new experiences. Um, so, 
you know, that's a, 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 you know, two examples of, you know, what I said is like 200 organizations that are out there doing kind of transformational work. Um, and about like two minutes, okay. Um, and so um, I think um, the other thing that I would say just quickly about Third Wave and my own uh, experience there is that I, you know, I've been there since, y'all probably heard, like since I left here, basically. Uh, so, um, so what was really important in Third Wave was one, to have an organization that, again, was led by young women and trans youth. So our board is 35 and has been predominantly uh, folks 35 and under. Um, and that we were really focused on leadership development so that it was fine for me to be in a space and to learn new skills and to grow. Um, so that I could be in a place where I would feel comfortable building on the leadership and serving, actually, the organizations that we support in a new way. Um, and I feel like that opportunity doesn't happen too often. I'm, I'm 31. Of all my peers, I know very few who've been in their jobs past two years. Um, and part of that is because the environments in which they work speak to a desire for social justice, but often don't promote that in terms of how people are nurtured, developed, supported in their growth. Um, and so it's felt like a real, it's been really humbling to me to be a part of an organization that's done that, but to also be able to support organizations that have that as a key value if we know that what we're looking to do is build transformation and a new way of relating to each other in society that we have to start kind of at home in our organizations and in our connections with each other. So. I'll stop there and look forward to the conversation. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Hi. My name is Deborah. Um, I'm a member of Domestic Workers United. I have been a member for the past three years. Uh, I have been a nanny for eight years. Um, Domestic Workers United is made up of babysitters, elderly caregivers, and, and household cleaners. Um, our organization helps us to organize in order to build power, raise a level of respect for domestic work, establish fair labor standards in the domestic industry. It helps to build a movement to end exploitation and oppression for all. To this end, we organize over 200,000 women of color over the metropolitan area who do this kind of work. Um, the organization has a combination of membership-based building, leadership development, grassroots campaign for justice, and fair labor standard. We work in close collaboration with other domestic workers organizations. We have a lot of support from other allies, which we are very grateful for. Right now, Domestic Workers United has been making a lot of trips to Albany in trying to get our Bill of Rights passed. The Bill of Rights is something that we are looking forward to with such, 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 I, I don't know what to say, it's with such anxiety. We want the Bill of Rights to pass. The Bill of Rights includes paid sick days, personal days. A lot of us get 
sent home from our jobs without being given notice, so we are not given severance pay. We would like that to be included. Health care as well. We are not, God forbid, allowed to get sick on the job. If you call in and say you're sick, then you no longer have a job. Um, we would like to put things in place where people are not exploited, abused, whether it be verbally or physically. Um, the labor laws right now exclude domestic workers and farm workers. This is dating back as far back to the days of slavery because farm workers and domestic workers are not considered a job. Women who work in the homes of their employers, this is not considered work. You are going into the home, you are not going into an office or a corporation, so it is not considered a job. But it is a job. We as domestic worker allow all other form of work to take place because we go into the homes to take care of people, families, their children, and we make it possible for them to go to their jobs, which is important to them. That's their livelihood. Domestic work is our livelihood. We take pride in what we do. Taking care of your prized possession, then we have a right to be treated with respect and with dignity. We deserve it. There have been instances where some of us have been raped by our employers. There have been instances where some of us has, have been beaten, where we go to work and we are not given food. Those of us who do live in, we have to get up from six in the morning, from sunrise to sunset. Some of us are not being paid. Some of us are asked and especially in this time where everyone, because of the financial situation in the country right now, the recession, everyone is talking about, okay, I have a friend and she has two kids, and she's going to bring over the kids for you to take care of, including my three. You have to do it, otherwise you would no longer have a job. Even if you're taking care of somebody else's kid, and including your job that you already have, you are not being paid extra. This kind of exploitation, we think, should be stopped. The industry um, is an enormous workforce of 200,000 women in the New York and Greater metropolitan area, and over 2 million nationally. Mostly women of color who come to this country because of the economic policies around the world. The, the policies of globalization, which has, has hurt our country and has forced us to come to this country to look for work. A lot of us being, being undocumented, we find ourselves in this industry. It's not to say that you left your country and you come here uneducated. A lot of us are educated. We have gone to high school, to college, but in order to look for something better, to want more for your family, which we leave our family home and come to take care of other people's families. Despite the important work we do to provide critical care for professional families, we are treated less than human beings and are vulnerable to some of the worst abuses you can imagine.
when I, the very first day, and this, this is, being a part of Domestic Worker United is really, really very important to me. It's an organization that I hold near and dear to my heart. Because of the fact that so many of us as women of color is being mistreated, and sometimes you listen to some of the stories, you would cry. The very first day that I attended a meeting of Domestic Workers United, there was a young woman who was relating her story. And she was talking about the fact that she was being raped by her employer. And at night, when he come to her room, he would then take her to somebody else's house so that the both of them can rape her. These are some of the things, and that's just to scratch the surface. These are some of the things that take place in the industry that you would never, never hear about. I believe that we are the ones and the only people who can tell our story. Um, recently, there was a show called The Nanny Diaries. That was just friction. Yeah. I've also seen um, a new nanny diary coming out. It was posted on the Craigslist, and I've saw some, some um, material on it. I believe it's only us who can tell our story. Domestic Workers United put their members through leadership development. They have computer classes. They have a nanny training program where there's basic pediatrics, um, negotiation with your employer, how to do up your resume to present yourself more professionally. Um, there's also CPR certification through this program. There is also for the Latino members of the organization, um, English as a second language. Because being a Latina and cannot speak English, a lot of times they are exploited because of that fact. They cannot communicate and they don't know what they're getting themselves into. So we offer English as a second language. Um, at this time, our Bill of Rights was passed in the Assembly. But at the end of this month, it is going to be, um, it is slated to come to the floor at the end of the month in the, in the Senate. We would like everyone to support us. I've brought um, material that is on the table in the back. If anyone has any questions, feel free to ask. Um, the bill, the bill number is S2311. I would like to now share um, my personal experience with you. It's just one of my stories. Recently, I was fired by my employers because I suffer with muscle spasm. So I take painkillers for the pain. The tablet I, um, I took, I put it in my pocket, and unknowingly it fell out. They came home in the afternoon and found the tablet, and they said to me, they accused me of trying to kill their child. This is a child I have been taken care of for two years and four months. 
I was terminated without notice. I was given my week's salary, which is what I work for. I haven't taken vacation for the year. I was not paid for my vacation. Even though there's a signed agreement between myself and my, my employer that if I was terminated without notice, I was supposed to receive three weeks severance pay. I was not given any severance pay. Hence the reason why I told you at the beginning that this organization is near and dear to my heart. Because when you listen to all the other stories of the people who are in the organization, and you hear some of the things that they go through, you know that this is where you have to fight. You have to continue the struggle to mobilize, to get people, those of us who don't know, we want you to know. It's not, I mean, sometimes you look on the television and you hear about a nanny shake the child. But when do you hear about what is being done to the nannies? There was one of the ladies that we fought a case for her where she was living in the basement of her employer where the sewer was overflowing. And in order for her to get to her bed, she had to go outside during the day and get cardboard or boxes so she can step on to get to her bed because the sewer is overflowing down there. These are just to scratch the surface. These are just some of the things that we go through. Who's going to tell our story? You, you, you wouldn't hear this on the, on the television. Fox 5 wouldn't carry this live. We also offer journalism where we work together with WBAI and we work together with another, um, another grassroots media organization where we air our stories on the radio because we believe that only us can tell our story. We have made great stride in our Domestic Worker Bill of Rights campaign and we will continue to mobilize for recognition, respect, and reparation for all domestic workers. Our organization is a nonprofit organization and we do a lot of fundraising in order to get funds to keep things going. I know if Aijin was here and I speak on behalf of Aijin, um, I apologize for her not being here, but she's not feeling well. She would have gone into the logistic as to how, you know, we get our funding and all of that. I'm not very versed in that area, so. <laughs> um, my, my thought I want to leave with you is, never doubt that a group of thoughtful, committed women can help make a change in the world. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Rinku Sen. First thing I have to say is that what I've been doing on my phone over there is not checking uh, my Facebook friends or my email, but uh, live tweeting this panel, which um, I've gotten into the habit of doing um, because people learn things and seem to like it. So uh, I appreciate my uh, sister's patience with that over here and um, all of you, uh, all of yours as well. Uh, I wanted to say a little bit about the Applied Research Center and the work we do and what I've learned about making change as a result of doing that work. Um, and 
Mia and Deborah both gave me really, really great material to work with, so uh, I'll try to use some examples out of their work as well. The Applied Research Center is a racial justice think tank. We started in the early 80s with a very bland name because what we did was fairly radical analysis that community organizations of color used to move their campaigns forward. So. Um, closely tied to the Center for Third World Organizing. So the people who wouldn't deal with the Center for Third World Organizing could instead deal with the Applied Research Center. It was um, a strategy built for its time, a branding strategy. Um, and our job is to popularize racial justice ideas and to prepare people to fight for them. And the way we largely do that is by telling the stories of uh, everyday people set in the context of the institutions and rules that shape their lives. So not to tell a bunch of random individual stories that make you think, well, everything that happens to a Deborah is as a result of her own choices, you know, quote unquote, but so that you you can really see both how people do take their agency, but also what constrains their um, situations. We have a very explicit focus on racial justice. That is the core of what we do. Uh, but we like to say that we're explicit about that, not exclusive. So we know that race is not 100% uh, of most things and that there are other systems at play that also need to be taken into account. It seems to me now that the big uh, challenge facing both feminists and racial justice activists is what I think of as the post-post challenge, the notion that uh, now it's time for the post-feminist stage and the post-racial stage. And um, there's obviously a thread in that uh, a challenge which has to do with uh, really questioning the values that undergird feminism and racial justice and suggesting that those values either have been sufficiently established in the society and sufficiently pr pr protected, or that they're no longer important for one reason or another. Uh, it's, you know, post-feminist and post-racial are slightly different phrases, but the idea and the attack is very, very similar. And so we've been struggling with both as our uh, friends who work in um, more women-centered spaces have been, have been struggling particularly with the post-feminist thing. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about when we're having this kind of attack on very basic values coming at us, what is it that we need to learn and do uh, in terms of framing our own struggles and our response to that so that we can uh, do the opposite, build support for racial justice and for gender justice and um, keep growing the movements, not let them stagnate and uh, keep making progress. So very quickly, what are frames? I thought it might be helpful to start with that. Frames are ways of thinking. They're systems of thinking, uh, uh, dominant ideas about how the world works. And they're essentially hardwired into our brain as a result of thousands of years of hearing essentially the same stories and seeing the same images over and over again. So if I say to you, for example, the Good Samaritan, you know what that is, right? Many, many people who are not Christians, who are not from the West, who are not, um, 
who, you know, don't know anything about Jesus Christ know that there's a notion of the Good Samaritan. If I say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, people know, Americans in particular, know what that means. So frames are set in our brains through repetition, and they're triggered by images and myths and stories. They are never, ever triggered by data. Frames and data do not go together. They're like this. So social psychologists, through all of their studies, have told us that when people hear facts and data that contradict their dominant frame, what do they do? Do they change their dominant frame? No, they dismiss the facts and the data. Now, this is not hopeless because there are always competing frames. You know, someone who has had the pull yourself up by your bootstraps experience and story has also somewhere in their lives um, had an experience of hospitality or helping the stranger or uh, something like that. So there's always a kind of a non-dominant frame or a, a oppositional frame, and our job has to be to trigger those oppositional frames. Now, I don't know about you, but after last year's election, uh, anytime anybody said, oh, we're now post-racial on TV or somewhere else, some racial justice person or civil rights person would get up and say, we're not post-racial. Look at this piece of data and this piece of data and this piece of data. And uh, here we are a year later. That obviously did not work to convince Americans that post-racial is not where we are and that racial justice still needs a lot of attention. So um, advice, piece of advice number one is um, do not lead with data. And I'm saying this as the director of the Applied Research Center. So um, this doesn't mean that we don't do research or that we don't deal with empirical data. It just means that we use it very, very strategically and we understand its limitations. It's not going to do everything for you. And um, our political choices are not rational. They're hardwired into our brains. They're triggered emotionally. And um, that is the reality that we have to deal with. We can complain about the lack of rationality on the other side, whatever it is. um, But complaining isn't going to change it. What's going to change it is our increasing sophistication in telling stories within the kinds of frames we want to move. So you heard a couple of reframes just in the earlier part of this panel. Mia said that a lot of the third wave grantees do not use the word feminism. They don't relate to it in various ways. They use gender justice. That's a reframe within a movement. Uh, Deborah said domestic work is work. That's a reframe in the larger world in terms of um, you know, trying to trigger um, the oppositional idea that certainly most women have, regardless of class, that um, the domestic, uh, the things you have to do to keep domestic life together uh, are time-consuming and strenuous and uh, exacting. So, uh, So those are reframes that are meant to expand those movements or establish those movements uh, and very, very important pieces of work. And I don't know um, uh, what happened but ref- in, in these situations, but reframing takes time and it takes experimentation. So it's not like one day you're going to sit down with your colleagues and say, oh, um, the right wing is crying socialism uh, about health care reform and in three hours we're going to come up with the right other phrase and put it out there and win. Uh, no, the right wing developed its frames uh, after a lot of experimentation over many years, 40 years with a lot of communications and media resources and research invested in that work. 
Uh, I want to give one very specific example of reframing that I've been trying to do, and, um, and then I'll close up very soon after that. So if you look at the word illegal uh, as applied to immigrants, illegal immigrants, illegal aliens, uh, you can track over the last 15 years the um, establishment of that work in American political discourse. So 10, 15 years ago, none of the major newspapers in the country used it. The New York Times didn't use it. The LA Times didn't use it. The Washington Post didn't use it. And in their style guides, it said, we don't use that word because it's inaccurate. It describes a civil violation rather than a criminal one. And it's dehumanizing. Um, today, of course, they all use it. And they all use it in part because anti-immigrant um, uh, activists, restrictionists, insisted that they do. They said things like, when they talk to reporters, um, and as a reporter, they've said it to me, they've said, in a sentence where you quote me and my attitudes, do not use the word undocumented, use illegal, even if it's not in my quote. And definitely, if it's in my quote, do not change it. And um, and then, you know, they built up Lou Dobbs and built up Glenn Beck, and they say it again and again and again, and Fox News became a big deal. And so Americans here, obviously it doesn't take thousands of years. All you need is a kind of, I guess, several thousand year old notion of strangers, and then 10, 15, 20 years of concentrated hammering on a word or a phrase. Now, what has our, what's the effect of that? The effect is that people think of immigrants as criminals. Um, either they're, you know, coming across the border without papers to steal somebody's job or to plot some kind of terrorist activity. And that's the right wing frame on immigrants. They're all criminals. They have to be controlled and detained and deported and so on. And that's what the enforcement part of our immigration law debate is all about. Now, what was our response to that? What was the pro-immigrant response? The reframing attempt uh, starting, I would say, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, certainly was present before that, but has really taken off since then. The reframing attempt was to say, no, immigrants aren't criminals. They're workers. They're innocent, hard workers. And for many years, that was the message you heard coming out of the pro-immigrant movement, innocent, hard workers. You had lots of people, uh, you know, in their uh, messaging saying, I'm an innocent hard worker, essentially. So what did, what did that do? Did it actually produce better immigration policy? So far, it has not. Uh, it hasn't produced any kind of relief, uh, like legalization for all of the undocumented people who are here in the country. Um, and it has, uh, in many ways, blocked the natural alliances that those folks could have built with uh, the people who are uh, thought of as criminals in the United States, which is poor black folks. So if you say, I'm a hardworking, innocent person in this country, what are you comparing yourself to, even if you don't say it? Who is not innocent and who is not hardworking? You know, people are not thinking that that is Ken Lay of Enron, the, you know, or Bernie Mason. Off, they're thinking it's the black guy who you know walked across the um, who I walked across the street to get away from yesterday. So 
the problem with this particular reframing attempt is that it then presents immigrants as simply a pair of hands available for hauling or picking or cleaning and or writing computer code even. Uh, it doesn't have to be so class-bound. And, um, and the solution to that ends up being uh, temporary workers' programs, labor uh, programs that still tie immigrants to their employer in the kinds of ways that Deborah was talking about, um, really make immigrants very exploitable. So what actually needs to happen in the immigration debate and what we've been trying to do is present, uh, is to rehumanize immigrants. It's not about saying they're workers or they're um, innocent or they're family people. It's about saying that immigrants are full human beings who have always made enormous contributions to whatever place they went to, and not just economic contributions, but also cultural and civic and social contributions. So the book, The Accidental American um, uh, is about a group of immigrant restaurant workers who worked at Windows on the World and after September 11th lost their jobs, lost many of their friends, and instead, and as a way to deal with their grief and the trauma of that, really began to focus not just on the um, services that immigrant workers needed, but on the power that they needed. And as a result, over you know five or six years that the years that the book covers, um, essentially posted a huge challenge to New York City's restaurant industry in terms of how it, uh, what kind of power it allows immigrants to exercise. Um, I like to call it basically kicking restaurant employer butt from one end of the city to the other. Uh, but what you get to see in that book is uh, is immigrants not just as workers, but also as travelers, as students, as political people, as uh, civic-minded people, as husbands, as uh, mothers. And it's not any one of those things that's going to change the American perception of the immigrant. It's all of that together that um, makes the immigrant a full human being. So uh, the last thing I want to say about framing is that we tend to frame uh, with problems. So just as we lead with data, most of that data is about the problem. So almost always, um, or this is starting to change, partly, we hope, because of all our work. Um, when people talk about what is happening in their communities, their presentation in 10 or 15 minutes might be 85% problem. and. If you get to it, it's going to be 15% solution. So the thing I've learned by making the transition from when I was an organizer to now being a journalist is that endless human suffering is not doesn't create any sense of urgency in people. I know that's like a really terrible truth to acknowledge, and obviously human suffering you know drove me to do something. But most people, and over time, even the most committed activist, cannot get behind um, problem, problem, problem all the time in order to feel the urgency that drives you to actually do something, you have to feel like there's an opportunity and there's a solution. And one of the biggest problems with the post-racial moment uh, 
is that Americans think of racism as individual and intentional and explicit always. They're unable to see the ways that racism works structurally through the rules of our society. And, um, and because they think it's individual, they believe that nothing can be done. What people think is what people think. And you can't ever change that in a real uh, society-wide way. So if we can't bust through that kind of fatalism around racism, then we're never going to uh, be able to defend the victories of the civil rights era or win anything new. So uh, think a lot about framing, focus on solutions, and, um, and put your data where it belongs, which is probably somewhere in the middle of your stories. Thank you so much. I want to thank all our speakers for an excellent panel. And while you all gather your thoughts um, uh, about the questions that you would like to ask our panelists, I want to ask them just if they have questions of each other or if they have uh, solutions that they want to put forward. Deborah has already given us a solution in Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. But if you have anything more you want to say about that or you want to talk any about solutions, we're open to that as well, or if you have questions of each other. Well, I'd love to hear Deborah just say where the bill is, if you know what needs, like, should we be calling our state assembly people yes. and saying, pass it? Yes, you definitely should. Um, whoever is your representative for your area, it would be nice for us to call in and let them know that we, want, we would like them to pass the bill. Well, the bill is passed in the assembly, but at the end of this month, it's going to be slated in the Senate where we would like it to be passed in the Senate, then we, we know definitely we are moving forward. Mm -hmm. as, um, as I was being prepped today about, you know, there are the, the home health attendants who, um, who fought for certain things, and we were told that when we took our bill to the Senate that these people, even though they are unionized, even though our bill was amended, we are getting a lot more than they are actually getting. Mm -hmm. So some of us believe that, okay, we are not getting exactly what it is we want, but even if we accept what it is they have on the amended bill, mm -hmm. it's a lot more than other people are getting. And we were also told by the Senate um, that, you know, other workforce will question the fact that why is domestic worker getting this while other workforce is not getting it? So the only thing that they are going to do is the amended bill. Okay. We would continue to fight for what we, we would like to get. But in the meantime, taking the amended bill, it's a very good start. It helps um, to motivate people. Because a lot of times when you do outreach and you go in the park to talk to other babysitters and stuff, they say, you guys still doing this thing? Haven't you gotten, do you have, have you got anything yet? Why are you guys still doing this thing? You know, these people are not going to do anything, but if we have something that we can say, yes, the Senate passed this, and this is what we've been fighting for for eight years, we have finally gotten, at least we have gotten a star. So it's supposed to be something that can help motivate us, motivate us into going forward and to get what it is we really want, which might take a lot of time, but we are still fighting. The struggle is still on. Okay, questions from the audience here. And would you please just stand up? And we have um, uh, students are going to bring you a mic, and please speak into it. Um, my question's for you. Um, so when you're talking about reframing, and you mentioned how you know 
in the process of that kind of the shift from calling women calling themselves feminists to kind of gender equalists are you saying that we should abandon the word in order to make it more sort of generation friendly uh, no, I'm not saying anything, and Mia might want to deal with that. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that. I mean, I call myself a feminist, and I'm not ready to let it go. But I also do talk about gender justice. I think what's instructive, the thing to pay attention to, is what those two different frames arouse for people, and not just because of their stereotypes, but also because of what's included. So just, you know, feminism is clearly about women, whereas gender justice appears to be about both or multiple sexes, you know? Um, and so if you are a person who uh, is closely tied to men or closely tied to people who don't use a gender identity or um, have other, you know, other gender identities, then um, that might be the term that works the best for you, that you identify with the most. I think that's where the reframing came from. What strategic decision we make as a whole um, for pushing out into the society is uh, a different question. And Frankly, that might not end up being either feminism or gender justice because neither one's really kind of, um, for in my mind, um, user friendly enough. Um, so those are the questions. Do you to think ask it's possible yourself. to change people's attitudes about? Because I know, I mean, my generation is like cringes at the use of the word, and it just this completely this total misconception of of what it means, and they see it as women above men, and obviously it's it's a major problem. Do you think it's possible to reverse that, or do you think that it's kind of hopeless at this I point? I think it's possible, but you have to really explicitly decide that you're going to change the meaning, that the popular meaning of feminism. And, um, and it would take decades. All right, and Mia, do you want to, before we move on to another question, Mia, why don't you respond as well? Um, I, I, I mean, I feel like, um, so just to add another layer, I feel like um, there is power in naming and there is power in building and creating an identity, right? And so part of why Third Wave has not been stuck on supporting only organizations that identify as feminist or saying that all young folks have to call themselves feminists to recognize the lineage and the framework and the historical kind of context um, is because people deserve the right and the power to like name themselves, right? That's, that's critical. Um, and at the same time, we can't let go of what has happened. Like we cannot forget and lose like uh, the work that's happened and come before. Um, and so we, and we have to have the ability to build upon that. And we're in this to win. Right? So at the end of the day, we have to be strategic to think about what it means to build power and, and to not kind of compromise the kind of core values that are about gender justice or feminism. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where we've taken our stance and how we've been able to support a broad range of organizations that both identify. And then why we also, however, continue to call ourselves a feminist organization. Because we recognize that 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 losing that is about kind of conceding um, and, that, and that we're not on the front line, lines. And part of our role as a foundation is to be an amplifier vehicle, right? So we can make a different strategic choice than um, the organization that is young feminists or sex workers. Right? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, good, right here in the back. Hi, thank you very much. I'm really intrigued by what all of you have to say. Um, I have two questions. My first question is about feminist organizations and how they are run and operated, um, and whether it's a collective-run-based type thing, or if there's a dynamic power situation and how that works and operates, um, because I think that has a lot to do with how the work is done, whether it's collective or what have you. Um, and then I was also wondering, as a young third-wave feminist, what your best suggestions would be to get involved in the field. I recently graduated, and I'm really looking to just jump into the nonprofit feminist world, but I'm not sure what angle to take or what approach, so thank you. Okay, and I think we probably have different uh, organizations in the way they're run. So, Deborah, why don't you start about the way that DWU is run, and then Rinku and Mia can jump in. DWU is basically run by the members of the organization, which are workers. They work in collaboration with the organizers, people like Igen, Priscilla, um, who is on staff. The, the organizers of the organization has more in-depth knowledge as to organizing. We learn a lot from the organizers. We we are educated with different aspects of organizing. We, it's a non-profit organization. We come together to do fundraising. Um, we educate ourselves too with labor laws because when you have to make trips to Albany, you have to study the people that you're going to speak with. Like a lot of those legislators, we go deep into their background and find out where they were. Where, where's best we could attack from? Because <laughs> when you want to, when you want to get on the people, you have to hit them below the belt. So sometimes you think about what is their core beliefs and, and where they serve and which which community they serve. What what where best you can angle them. A lot of people, um, as we as as. You were saying, even though you bring struggles and people, different um, abuses to people, it's very hard sometimes to get people on stream and to come forward and to help. But when you touch an issues that is near and dear to them, then you get a reaction. And a lot of times you have to go. We believe that um, in going to these different assemblymen, senators and stuff, you create a greater impact when you go in numbers. Your voices are heard better in numbers. So um, the general structure of the organization is a nonprofit one. We work hard with the membership to create, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of direct um, collaboration with other allies who are doing the same work or maybe doing work that is different but who will support us. Um, we have a lot of support from gender um, groups who fight for the same thing that you're fighting for. And uh, we believe that each and every one of us have a struggle. And we're in every organization because we believe our struggle is important to us. And it's how you present that struggle to someone else that makes their belief just as, as yours. Um, we have a way that we say, and, and you mention it, repetition, repetition, repetition. If I'm in your S24 talking about Domestic Workers United, you're going to get fed up with me. You're going to say, listen, what do you want? <laughs> you know? So basically, I mean, that's it. I, the, the, I hope that answers your question. 
Okay, Mia. I'll just pick up um, kind of where you were leaving off a bit, which is just to say that, um, you know, organizations come in uh, different models and methods, and it's about, um, and what you organize around is based on your passion, right? So, like, if you're thinking about jumping into the nonprofit role, world, um, you know, it's often a thankless effort. <laughs> Um, not totally, but, um, you know, um, we are trying to build institutions that are effective and, and nurture us, but the reality is, like, you need to go where your passion is. That, that's where you'll be most effective. Um, and, and also to take stock of your skills and your privileges, because often you can use those to bridge to kind of what communities need. Um, I mean, to be very I never thought I'd be in philanthropy or that philanthropy was a career track like that um, when I was leaving uh, here or in general. Like, it just was not on my frame uh, or my on my radar. Um, and when I was hearing Deborah say, like, all the foundations I worked with, I was like, really? Um, but I, I think that's partially because I was willing to do some of the bridge building um, that sometimes folks felt uncomfortable doing. Um, so that being said, I, I took stock in what had been a part of my role for a long time, that it was just in life having to go from different worlds, from a low-income community to, like, a wealthy community to go to school or what have you, right? Like, that's just a part of... So take stock of that. Um, and then where the, there's a void, right? Like, where you feel like organizing comes best and works effectively when you recognize there's a need that needs to be filled. And then strategically, you talk about how we talk about this to other folks, right? So just as a quick example, um, we do a lot of funding and reproductive justice work. Um, that reproductive justice frame came because of the fact that we recognized that sexual and reproductive health disparities were rampant in communities of color. They, you know, like we are talking about conditions that exist, you know, the, that kind of experiences of maternal mortality or STIs are, are comparable to places that have no kind of health infrastructure, right? So as a result, like that's not okay. Um, and so, um, but we kept hitting people over the head like, this is not cool, this is not cool, you have to put resources in communities of color that was not working. Um, so what we had to talk about was like, in order to win on the things that have been important to you, abortion for such a long time, you need a different, you need a new and emerge and engaged base that can help you do that. And so in order to win on the issues that are important, build a more inclusive, powerful base and, 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 see, and see leadership that happens in that place. So I'll just, um, so I think that, um, so I just wanted to kind of quickly share that I think that you have to go to the place where there is need and think about the strategy. And then finally, in terms of organizational infrastructures, they're all over the place. And in Third Wave has actually been a model of that. <laughs> so um, we started off as, you know, a single kind of director, then we moved to co-directors and executive director, and we have an executive committee of a board that didn't have roles, like they were just kind of a body, a collective body that would help men, you know. So we tried all these different incarnations and incantations of like how you uh, work with a, a, a notion to be kind of rel relatively democratic and inclusive in an organizational setting that has accountability and goals. Um, and so now we're in the space of, you know, having more structure that's kind of more similar to a hierarchical model, but really understanding that it's about being inclusive and ensuring that, that everyone has the right input and voice. 
um, in the decisions moving forward um, and clarifying that because as long as people know what their voice means and what the input matters in, then that's when you have some greater transparency as when places, even if it's a collective, but the power whole is held in a different way um, and there's not as much transparency and you have a different impact. So. I would say, you know, the organizations we support are all, some of them are collectives, They're, many are membership run, some of them have kind of traditional hierarchies, and people are all in between just trying to figure out how to um, make that work, you know. Um, so the important thing here is that all organizations need to have a structure. So... Um, Different structures have different benefits and costs. Um, a cost of a flat structure where there is no hierarchy is that there are often hidden power relations, you know, someone who really has a particular influence uh, because of their social networks and in that supposedly flat structure or um, because that's the person who has all the money or whatever, access to the money. So flat structures, I think that my warning, my warning is that flat structures are uh, quite rarely actually flat over the long term. There's a great article that was uh, written in the 70s by Joe Freeman, which I think is maybe a um, pseudonym, uh, called The Tyranny of Structurelessness, in which she crit critiques, she points out these hidden power dynamics and supposedly flat conscious feminist consciousness-raising structures. And it's really interesting because that article is doing a new round now in the uh, blogosphere and the... Um, Twitter net, you know, so because the internet is so flat, supposedly, um, and so, you know, where people can have equal power, supposedly, uh, folks have dug up that article as an example, as a way of analyzing why that's not actually true for our um, for our internet. I, when I was in college, the best political experience I ever had was this effort, this campaign um, that was planned by consensus by 120 women to um, make some changes in the school's sexual violence policies. You know, we got a couple of frats kicked off campus and all kinds of great things uh, on our campus, <laughs> including that. Um, you know, things that people really didn't think could be done. And um, 120 women, you know, they had a steering committee, but really making the big decisions together, whether to trample the newly planted grass or not uh, during, the, during the rally. And that was a wonderful experience, but I have never had it again since in the 25 years I've been doing this work. And, but I've had a lot of other great experiences in hierarchies. Um, I think the question is whether there's room for people to participate. Some of the benefits of hierarchies are that uh, leaders get to lead and um, people get credit for their work. Um, and I think those are kind of important leadership development um, things, you know. You have to actually have opportunities to lead, and you have to get credit for your work. That's like a very basic thing, and that's some of what the hierarchies I've worked in have really tried to ensure happens. Good. We have time for one more question right here in the back. Hi. I have a question. Can you hear me? I have a question for Ms. Deborah Cole. Because it's so topical today, how do your members access affordable health care? Because I can imagine that their employers don't provide them with health care coverage. So how do they deal with that? 
A lot of us do not have health care, especially those of us who, the majority of us are undocumented, and a lot of us don't have health care. But there are clinics all over that um, they offer free scale for medical. And sometimes um, the organizers would have different people from different clinics come in and talk to the members about how best they can take care of themselves. Um, they have people come and give them references as to where they should go, what they should do, you know. But in regards to getting health care from your employers, especially when you're undocumented, that's a no. For those of them who are documented, sometimes it's also a no. Their employers refuse to pay, you know, for their health care. Um, health, your health is very important because if you're not well, it means you cannot go to your job. It means you have no way of creating a livelihood for yourself and for your family. So basically, we, we pay out of our pockets. Okay. Um, I'm sure you'll get a chance to talk to our speakers if you want to come up afterwards. I have two rounds of thank yous. Again, I want to thank the staff of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, Hisela Fasado, Lucy Trainer, and Pam Phillips. And I also want to give, ask you to help me in thanking our three speakers for a really wonderful time.